You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 28 with Alexis Connison. Alexis is a clinical psychologist and certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor in private practice in New York City. She's the owner of Connison Psychological Services, Hayes-informed group therapy practice specializing in the treatment of binge eating disorder, disordered eating, and body image. By the way, Hayes is uh, health at every size. She is the founder of the Anti-Diet Plan, a weight-inclusive online mindful eating program, and is the author of the book, The Diet-Free Revolution, 10 Steps to Free Yourself from the Diet Cycle with Mindful Eating and Radical Self-Acceptance. She was previously a research associate at the New York Nutrition Obesity Research Center in affiliation with Columbia University, and her research has been published in peer-reviewed journals. She is a frequent speaker at conferences. She's been published in various different media outlets, and you can find her on social media at The Anti-Diet Plan. So something that just popped into my brain about her experience with the New York Nutrition Obesity Research Center is that Alexis has some really cool information out there about the quote obesity epidemic and like what the hell is the problem with the word obese to begin with. So definitely check some of that out. Our conversation today is focused on the idea of why don't diets work and how can you actually pursue health without pursuing weight loss? So going through specifics about how to incorporate mindfulness and maybe you're like me, I mentioned this in the podcast, you're kind of like rolling your eyes at like, seriously, you're bringing the mindfulness card, but let's give it a chance. It's actually quite interesting and not as eye rolly as you think. So navigating hunger fullness and really working with our internal cues to establish a healthy relationship with food. We also talk about body image and weight stigma and how all of this is so connected. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Alexis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to have this conversation. I know that you have so much information to share. So I'm happy that we can just spend a short period of time together. Something I just wanted to share about the book that you wrote. I absolutely loved it. And there were two favorite parts. One of them was so many of these books are like really dense and just sort of like boring to read. And every chapter you started off with a story and it felt so storytelling to me that I was compelled to read it. And it was, I felt drawn to the story of it. So that was one of my favorite parts. And then the second part is that sometimes a lot of this information is like, you just put it out there and it's like, well, okay, now what do I do with this? And at the end of every chapter, there's like, okay, here's what you do. You can journal on this, you can take action on it. So I really, really appreciate it. And I'm hoping we can dive into it a lot more today. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing those thoughts. I mean, those were two things that I was definitely thinking about a lot as I was writing the book, because on one hand, this whole issue is very there's a lot of like very rational information that we can present, a lot of education, but on a deeper basis, this is so 
you know, emotional. And I think the way that we connect emotionally is through stories and stories about people. So I really was trying to find that balance. And I'm glad that you caught that too, of bringing in stories of people that like hopefully readers can identify with and that they're drawn into the stories and, you know, make it a little bit more real and less abstract. Yeah. Because I identify with the person that you're talking about and not so much the ideas. It's like, okay, well that could technically sound more textbooky, Instead, this is, how does it apply to my life? Um, So even just like in a very broad way, we're talking about how diets don't work. And for people who have been on diets, anecdotally, they can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's sort of their personal experience. I wonder if you can start us off by sharing, like, why don't diets work? And is there research to back that up as besides for so many people's experience? Yeah. So there's actually a lot of research to back up the idea that diets don't work. And I mean, we're talking about research going back to like, even the 1950s is showing that and, really? and earlier than that. Yeah. Is showing that diets don't work. And I mean, we think about something like the Ansel Keys, Minnesota starvation experiment. That was, I'm trying to think of the date off the top of my head. I think like 1950s, 19 something, maybe even earlier than that. Yeah. I was, was it during the war? So it was, it was definitely early. Maybe 40s. Yeah. yeah. Right. So maybe the 1940s. And, you know, I think the diet industry has just continued to kind of ignore that evidence and pretend it doesn't exist and keep trying to convince us to buy the same plans and do the same thing over and over again. But when I was doing the research for my book, I was really amazed at just like how substantial the body of research is, how convincing it is that dieting doesn't work. And there's a lot of explanations for why it doesn't work. I went through some of both the psychological and biological explanations. And, you know, our body, just on a very basic level, when we talk about the biology of why diets don't work, our bodies were designed to stay alive and survive. And part of that includes keeping a, you know, somewhat stable body weight. So when we try to restrict ourselves and don't feed our bodies properly, our body goes into crisis mode and starts sending out all kinds of signals to try to get us to feed ourselves again and to regain a sense of homeostasis. And those signals are really strong because again, they were evolved to keep us alive through eons of evolution. So when we diet and we try to fight against those really strong signals from our body, over time, it really is a losing battle. And, you know, I think one of the biggest tricks that the diet industry plays on us is convincing us that it's our fault that these diets don't work because you see it again in the research. And it's just so clear that that's the expected outcome of dieting is to be able to stick to the plan for a certain amount of time, maybe lose some weight in the short term, but then to regain it back and to go off the plan long-term. And it's really not about any kind of individual failure as much as our body doing exactly what it's designed to do. Yeah. So I was thinking about this from the perspective of either somebody starting out or even when I was starting out, to me, diets were the way to get healthy. And of course, it's hard to shift gears. So for somebody who's thinking about dieting as a way to get healthy, then they might hear this and say, well, so, so what do I do now? Like if you're saying that diets don't work and losing weight doesn't work, how do I get healthy? Do I get healthy? What would you say to that person? So I think one of the most important things we can do is is to start to disentangle weight from health. There's also a lot of research that shows that weight 
you know, is not the be all and end all in terms of our health as so many of us has been taught and actually dieting and the process of losing and then regaining weight, which we often call weight cycling, um, or some people refer to as yo-yo dieting can actually be very stressful on our body. And that in and of itself can be associated with different types of negative health outcomes. In addition, any state where we're in chronic stress, as we often are when we're dieting, when we're hating our body, when we feel that we're not good enough, when we're experiencing weight-based discrimination or marginalization in other areas, those things all have profound impacts on our health too. And that state of being, you know, in chronic stress, uh, there's some research to show that, for example, people who experience high levels of internalized weight bias, so kind of thinking negative things about themselves based on their weight are at an increased risk for metabolic syndrome, which is part of, you know, diabetes can be part of that constellation. And it's often associated with being at a higher weight. But this research study actually showed that internalized weight bias was the most important, more important factor in determining, in um, predicting metabolic syndrome more so than weight. So I think when we can dig into the research a little bit more deeply and go beyond the headlines and what we might've heard on the evening news growing up that the quote unquote obesity epidemic is killing us all. And when we can actually like look at what the data shows, it's far less convincing than what the media would have us think. And on the other side of things, we also see that we can impact our health, that we can have positive effects on our health through making changes that are completely independent of losing weight and dieting. So if you do want to focus on your health, there's a lot of things that we can do that actually do promote healthier, you know, better health that aren't about weight loss and dieting. And I also just want to stick in there, even as I was asking the question on someone else's behalf, the use of the word health and healthy has such a, not a negative connotation, but it has such a diet connotation that when we use the term health, healthy, we really have to dig deeper. What do I mean when I use this? Do I, what you're saying, do I mean just something related to weight or is it something like a psychological, physical, emotional, everything related to wellness um, as opposed to like just one small piece of it? Exactly. I think that the idea of health has often gotten narrowed to mean diet and exercise and weight. But actually, when we think about health, it's such a broader term. And I, when I use health, I think about it not only in terms of physical well-being, but also mental well-being as well, you know, in addition. And they're not separate. Like we know that if we're struggling emotionally or mentally, that takes a toll on our body. If our body is unwell, that can take a toll on our mental state as well. For sure. What are some of the things that you had mentioned before that there are some things people can do if they're looking to promote more, I guess, if they're looking to be, again, use the word healthy, what are some of those things that they can do that are not related to weight loss? So some of the factors that come up again and again in the research that are connected with improved health, completely independent of weight or BMI, are things like getting enough sleep having good social connections. We know that loneliness and social isolation has a profound negative impact on our health. Eating more fruits and vegetables, being active, physically active, and it doesn't have to be the most intense level physical activity that you can muster up, but just having some level of activity, not smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol, not in excess. Those factors tend to come up again and again in research and stress. 
trying to manage your stress levels. I have a couple of thoughts about that. There's one thing, you know, the idea of having more fruits and vegetables that has come up in the research. And this can get so dicey for somebody who has a complicated relationship with food. They're saying, well, see, you said I should have more vegetables and more fruits and, and how many servings a day and just increase and increase and increase. And that if there's a day that there aren't any fruits or vegetables in your diet, it's like, okay, these are, you know, these are recommendations. These are things that the research have shown, but the second it becomes rigid, then all of that has just like flown out the window. Exactly. And I think that we have to look at this in context. So, you know, again, it's not just eating fruits and vegetables is the most important thing that you can do for your health. It's also managing stress levels, having social connections. You know, if you're stressing out about having X amount of fruits and vegetables in your diet, that's kind of defeating the purpose because then you're stressed and that's causing a negative impact. The other thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that these things make up a relatively small percentage of the pie chart of what determines our health. And by and large, the things that have the biggest impact of our health are things that are totally outside of our control. So genetics is the biggest factor and then income. And what we see is that really, yes, across the board, the wealthier you are, the more income that you have, the greater your life expectancy. And it's not just a difference between the people who are the poorest and the wealthiest. Even, you know, it, it holds true all the way throughout the spectrum. Any additional income that you have is going to extend your life. Now, you know, income is not something that most of us have a tremendous amount of control over because it's so tied in with privilege, with intergenerational transmission of wealth, with racism with, you know, systems of oppression of who has access to wealth and who doesn't in our culture. So if you, I always tell people, if you really want to, if you really care about people's health, if you really care about fat people's health, let's work at changing capitalism. Yeah. Another can of worms. Thanks, Alexis. We have another problem, (laughs) (laughs) but also, you know, just what's standing out to me is we have to keep in mind that this is statistically speaking, and just because somebody has access to more wealth or makes a lot of money, whatever that means to them, really doesn't mean that that means that their specific life expectancy goes up and that there are people who struggle on all sort of sides of the spectrum. I just want to focus on the idea that this is statistically speaking, it doesn't necessarily mean for individual people. Yes, absolutely. We're looking. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just saying, this is looking with broad strokes at research, at epidemiology, where they're looking at the general statistics across the population. So this does not necessarily hold true. And as we know, in therapy, where we work one-on-one with people, there's an immense amount of unique differences and statistics do not determine each individual situation. Yeah, maybe next book, you'll talk about capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I know that you're big on is mindfulness and how we can use that to sort of work toward a better relationship with food and our body. And for some of our listeners who might be similar to me, who sort of like roll their eyes at mindfulness, like, oh, well, whatever, Um, which I'll speak for myself, probably my own stuff, but especially for those people, like how do you A, define what mindfulness is and how it could be helpful? Because it really could be. Yeah. And I'll say you're not alone in that. And I definitely get a lot of people who roll their eyes when I start talking about mindfulness. So mindfulness as I use it is 
the idea of just being fully aware and present in the current moment with a sense of non-judgmental observation and awareness. So trying to approach the current moment with a sense of curiosity, with openness, with acceptance, and with compassion. And we can use that to, you know, apply that both as like a general practice, but also directly related to our eating and to our body. So many of us are, you know, really out of touch with like what our body's telling us and we eat in a way that can also feel disconnected where we're not fully present with our eating experiences. I will say, you know, mindfulness Oftentimes people think of it as this all or none, like, okay, I'm going to start practicing mindfulness and now I have to be like totally aware all the time and I can never eat in a way that's distracted or how am I going to go out to lunch with my friend because we're having a conversation. I'm not going to be able to be fully present with my meal. And that's really not what mindfulness is. At its essence, it's really just about observing and kind of being curious. So what does it feel like to eat in a way where you're not fully present? What does it feel like to maybe eat in a way that's rushed or eat while you're, you know, trying to feed your children and get out the door to work? And, you know, sometimes mindfulness does happen in the context of chaos and that's totally okay. Yeah. So I like this because it differentiates in my mind mindfulness from meditation and that meditation might be for some people, might not be for other people. That's another conversation, but meditation I'm talking about. I don't know if I said my mindfulness is for everybody. Mindfulness is just being aware and curious. Well, and I will say, I think that it is inextricably linked to meditation because mindfulness is, it kind of stems out of mindfulness meditation practices, but meditation, again, it doesn't have to be this process of like sitting in a quiet room for an hour and meditating and having your mind be like perfectly clear in the sense state. That's really not what meditation is about either. It's about finding ways to bring these practices into your life. So I usually recommend that people start with like either three minutes a day or five minutes a day, just focusing on your breath. And it doesn't have to be perfectly quiet. You could, again, just, it's about the observation. So what does it feel like to be focusing on your breath? And maybe your kids come in and interrupt you, or maybe, you know, you get a phone call or whatever, like life happens. It doesn't have to be about going away from your life. The idea is to bring mindfulness meditation into your daily life. But I do think that there's something important about the meditation practice, because even just a few minutes a day, it starts to shift the, um, there's some research that actually shifts the neural connections in our brain. So it can actually change the wiring in our brain. And that's cool. Definitely a reason to try that. (laughs) Yeah, it's very cool. The research on this is very interesting. And I think of that formal meditation practice as kind of like, like an exercise, like how you might do certain strength training exercises to like build a muscle. It's not necessarily for the sake of just doing those exercises, but then when you need to use the muscle, like when someone hands you something heavy or your kids jump into your arms, you have that muscle is there and ready to work for you. And the idea is that we have our, we're training our brain to function in a certain way so that when we need to bring our awareness to the present, maybe in a difficult eating experience, or if we're feeling really conflicted around food or having a particularly like negative body image day, we're able to catch those thoughts and bring our awareness and curiosity and non-judgmental observation to those moments when they're the most difficult moments to be mindful in. Yeah. I like the way that you conceptualize that. It's really helpful And it also, you won't necessarily know how it's helpful in the moment. It could be helpful down the line. But like you said, three minutes a day, maybe five minutes a day is really not that long of an investment 
So pivoting just ever so slightly to what it actually looks like to understand a little bit more about your relationship with food and navigating your internal cues, I guess it makes sense to talk about hunger fullness and what it is even physiologically and how we respond to it and and how we can shift how we respond to it to better our relationship with food. I don't know if you want to like break it down hunger fullness or both of them together. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that to start off with, it can be helpful if we think about our body, you know, remembering that our body and our appetite regulation system, which is part of like hunger and fullness was evolved to regulate our appetite and our eating. These are really powerful systems that have, you know, evolved again to keep us alive. So I think it's so interesting that we've been taught for so much of our lives to try to fight against this and to try to say, you know, I know better than my body. If I'm hungry, I can't really be hungry. I just ate an hour ago or, you know, it's outside of my intermittent fasting window. I can't be hungry now, or maybe I just need a drink of water or all the ways that we question ourselves around these really wise signals that our body is sending us. And again, I think that the meditation practice and that just trying to become more aware in different parts of our life, you know, set the stage for becoming more aware and tuning in more with our body's internal signals. So kind of checking in with our body throughout the day of like, what am I feeling? Am I hungry? Am I full? Am I needing anything right now? And I found this research actually really fascinating when I was looking into it more in depth for my book. I had learned a little bit about it like in grad school and when I was doing some of my postdoc research, but it was interesting to revisit it. Just the physiology of how our body manages hunger and fullness. And like when we get hungry, our body's sending out a set, you know, very complicated, intricate set of signals to encourage us to eat. And then as we're eating, our body is sending out signals to kind of communicate to us that we're getting satiated and that we can stop eating soon, that it's okay to stop eating soon. And it's just this constant dance that goes on throughout the day as like hunger wanes and fullness sets in and then fullness wanes and hunger sets in. It's really interesting. But yeah, I mean, I think that mindfulness, what I teach a lot of is trying to connect to the internal physiological signals that your body is sending you. And then of course, allowing ourselves to honor them and like eat when we're hungry and stop when we've had enough and know that there's always more available. Yeah. So that's assuming that we can, you know, building on the mindfulness piece that we can identify it. And then once we satiate ourselves or respect our fullness, then that's great. But what happens if it's more of the opposite? If like, I'm not honoring my hunger or my fullness cues? Like, does something happen in my body? Like what, or I don't know. Well, I think that our body continues to still communicate with us, whether we're listening or not. But I think that, you know, when we have spent a lot of years of our lives not listening, it can be harder, a little bit harder to find those cues. And, you know, it's really common that people worry when they're starting to do this work, like, well, my body just doesn't send me those cues or, you know, I can't tell when I'm hungry or full and my body must be broken from all the years of dieting and this won't work for me. Like, that's what I hear a lot of apprehension when people are starting mindful eating. And in my experience, I've never had someone who wasn't eventually able to start to tune into those cues or whose body was really 
kind of quote unquote, like not sending them those signals. There are some medical conditions that can impact it. If you're really having trouble identifying hunger and fullness, like it does make sense to speak to a medical doctor and make sure there's, you know, no medical reason for that. And then sometimes people, especially if they're in recovery from an eating disorder, do need a little bit more support from a nutritional perspective to make sure that they're eating regularly enough to, you know, that your body is nourished and sending out those cues. Cause sometimes our body can go into kind of like a starvation mode where it just feels like food is not going to be available. And that's a little bit more complex and a different story, but I'd recommend working with the treatment team if you find yourself in that boat. Yeah. Is there something that happens if let's say I continue to ignore my fullness cues that might be different from ignoring my hunger cues? Like, do I stop? feeling full? I don't think so. I think that it can sometimes feel, again, to me, it's more about the disconnection from our body than our body, like changing the cues. I think that that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when we can use mindfulness to try to tune into our body more and listen in a different way and learn to identify like some of the physiological cues, then yeah, I, I I think people have, in my experience, people have been able to reconnect. It's not always quick or easy, but I think with proper support, it is possible. Are there some like specific ways, yes, get more support and work with people one-on-one, but are there any things that just like sort of come to the top of your mind that can help somebody begin to identify some of those cues if they aren't currently in touch with them? Yeah. So, and the other thing I was going to add before I just remembered is to remember that like both hunger and fullness exists on a spectrum. And I think that oftentimes, especially when we've been more out of touch with our body, you know, we might say, I never feel full, but what we think about as fullness is really this very extreme level, you know, on the fullness scale, or I never feel hungry, but we associate hunger with like, you know, almost this state of starvation. And I think it can be really powerful to teach people the different ways that our body registers hunger and fullness and also the range of symptoms or, you know, body signs that we can experience because, you know, sometimes it's just that we're, you know, a little bit out of touch and not necessarily like recognizing what our body is trying to tell us. So in terms of like how to get started, I mean, I have two chapters on this in my book, but I often work with people using like a hunger scale and a fullness scale that I have that those are both in the book. And I have both one filled out with kind of like common symptoms that people experience when they're feeling hunger or fullness, but then also a blank one. And I think this is important for people to really identify what that looks like for your body, because some people have really different kinds of, you know, hunger and fullness cues. So, you know, I have some exercises in the book to try to get people to connect more with hunger and fullness and to just try to tune into what you feel as your body is showing you signs of hunger or fullness. Yeah. Like for somebody might feel it more in their stomach. And for me, when I'm thinking about food, I'm like, oh, I think I might be hungry. That's one of the things that come up for me. And then when I stop having interest in food, it's like, okay, I might be getting fuller. One part of identifying, I like the creating your own. That's a good idea. Yeah. And people have had, like, I've had clients with such unique hunger and fullness cues. It's always fun to hear like what comes up for people. But, you know, I had, like, I've heard about people who sneeze when they get hungry or who who feel it like really like in their chest or in their throat, almost a hunger or salvation starts. 
things like that. So yeah, it is unique. And I think that we have to kind of discover what that really feels like for each one of us. Yeah. So if there's one point that's going to be reiterated is your body has cues for a reason. It's a great tool, which sort of, you know, connects with something else that I had wanted to ask is something about like nutrition information that we're provided, whether it's through the media or the news or even nutrition labels, and that they sort of put themselves out there as a guide. And this is, I guess, talking to the idea that perhaps our body is more of a guide than that, even if it's not like a popular opinion. (laughs) Yeah. I really believe that because the nutrition information and like all these things that we hear about in this very universal, you know, manner, whether it's like sugar is bad or acai berries are the miracle cure to everything or like whatever. (laughs) Today, tomorrow, (laughs) exactly. Well, and that's exactly the point is that it changes all the time. And if you look at the nutritional information from like the 1930s to now and what foods were considered healthy and what foods are considered unhealthy. I actually have, it's so fascinating. My grandfather wrote a kind of like a diet book, which I think is, no I, way. I have a picture of like my book and his book, like up against each other. <laughs> oh, that is great. But it was like written in, I think like the 1930s or 1920s maybe. And the foods that are put on this diet plan are a lot of foods that we would now consider to be like off limits on a lot of diet plans. So it just shows that the trends in nutrition change so much over time, but our bodies aren't changing. So, you know, what works well with our body and what is healthy, quote unquote, healthy for each one of us, like that doesn't change as quickly as all the nutritional guidance changes. And I think that it's much more reliable if we can just tune into our body and really start to recognize like what foods make us feel good, what doesn't, what gives us a tummy ache? What gives us energy? What makes us feel tired? What do we really enjoy? Like all of these things give far more accurate nutritional information than some kind of general guidance that's like intended for everyone because the same foods aren't going to work well for everyone. You know, if you have, for example, celiac disease, the foods that are going to be healthy for you are going to be, you know, very different from someone who might for example, you know, not have any dietary limitations or who may have an allergy to soy and, you know, like the foods that would be recommended for one diet could literally kill someone else. So it's very unique what foods are going to work best with your body. And I think we all get to figure that out for ourselves and we don't have to listen to what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And I like that you sort of highlight, it's not just about hungerfulness. It's about what to think about what foods give you energy, which ones make you tired, which ones make you feel energized. And then maybe there's an, another sort of subset of what are you craving and what do you enjoy eating? This is something you talk about, like the, the taste enjoyment scale. And I wonder if you could speak to that just for a second. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to that eating is complex. And I think it really has done a lot of harm, this whole like food is fuel notion. And this idea that we should only be eating things that like make our body run in the maximal way, because food is so much more than fuel. It's emotional. It's about connection. It's cultural. It's, you know, a connection to our lineage, like our heritage. It has so many different layers. And I think that, you know, it does a disservice to just kind of pretend that people can eat in this way that discounts all of that other stuff. And, you know, I think that when we talk about like what recognizing how different foods feel in your body, 
it's one piece of the puzzle. And just because like a food doesn't give you a ton of energy or might make you feel kind of tired or might give you a stomach ache or something like that doesn't mean that you can never eat it. It's just a choice that we make. So I talk in the book a little bit about, you know, even for example, if you have like lactose intolerance, does that mean you can never have ice cream again? Or there might be times where you say, I'm really, really craving ice cream and this ice cream sounds delicious and I have nothing to do for the rest of the evening and I don't mind having a stomach ache and like, I'm going to have the ice cream. But it's a piece of the guidance that you're using because at other times you might be on your lunch break from work and ice cream sounds appealing, but you know, you have like a big important meeting with your boss later where you're going to ask for a promotion and you're really nervous and like, maybe (laughs) you don't want to be like running to the bathroom in the middle of the meeting. So I think it's all about making choices rather than restrictions or deprivations or, you know, this external set of rules telling us like what we can and can't eat. And then to go back to your question, taste is, you know, another aspect of both, you know, taste, I think factors in both of like what brings us pleasure. And it also is part of our appetite regulation system where our body's communicating things like hunger and fullness to us through taste, which is really a lot of people don't think about taste as serving that purpose, but it does. So meaning like the food tastes different if we feel less hungry or more hungry. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. Yeah. um, I think Julia Child has a quote that says, hunger is the best seasoning because When we are hungry, our body is sending out signals that we need to eat. And one of those signals is that it activates our reward system where, you know, we get more pleasure and reward from eating when we're hungry because it's our body and brain's way of saying like, this is good. You need to eat. Like this is a pleasurable experience. And as we get satiated, our taste enjoyment of food often decreases over time. Or if we're not hungry, the food's just less enjoyable. And I actually had this realization. I, one of the things I love about mindful eating is like, it doesn't really matter how long you've been doing this work. We always have new insights. And like, I often eat, like I'm more in the habit of eating something sweet as like dessert after a meal. And I was recognizing the other day, I'm like, I really enjoy eating like a cookie or an ice cream or something so much more like just as a snack or in the middle, like as a standalone thing when I'm hungry and it actually tastes really even more delicious. I like it after dinner too. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So even just talking to the craving for a little bit, and we spoke a little bit about the idea of emotional eating, that we are people and therefore emotional eaters because we are not we have emotion. And so it's not necessarily a a bad thing to eat emotionally. What about somebody who does feel like their quote, emotional eating feels chaotic? Like where do you draw the line and what do you do? So, you know, I think that it's really important to acknowledge as you did that emotional eating is a natural part of the human experience. And food is about those emotional connections. It's about sharing something with a friend or a loved one, or like eating something that brings back a memory from your childhood. I think we can't separate food from those experiences and who would want to, because that's so much of life. But, you know, I also want to recognize that there's a lot of people who identify as a quote unquote emotional eater who feel a lot of distress related to their eating. And it becomes kind of their habitual go-to way, you know, food becomes their habitual go-to way to cope with any and all emotions that are coming up. And the way that I work with it is, first of all, if something feels problematic, that is a reason to address it. And if you're eating 
for emotional reasons in a way that feels problematic, it's certainly something that's worth looking at, both from the terms of, is there judgment there that's making it feel problematic? So like, is it just this idea that we should never eat except for when we're hungry? But also, is it the only tool that you have available to cope with any kind of difficult emotional experiences? And I like to start off by saying like, bravo that there's something that's working for you because a lot of the times using food to cope with emotions, you know, is really a sign of resiliency and strength. Like it's something that's gotten you through some really difficult times and there's something to be said and honored about that. But if it feels like it's not working for you in certain ways, I think that we can try to examine like, first of all, what are the emotions that are going on? And then what are different ways to cope? And you know, food, I do believe that food is not like the one size fits all solution to all of our emotional needs. And sometimes what can happen, one of the reasons that I think emotional eating can start to feel problematic is that if it's being used as a way to kind of push away all of our emotions and, you know, it's not necessarily the eating that can be problematic as much as the pushing away of the emotions. And, you know, our emotions, just like these other signals that our body's sending us are important messengers. And I think it's important to pause and recognize what our emotions are trying to tell us and how they're trying to communicate with us and allow space for them to exist and to be heard and processed and eventually pass through when we are constantly trying to keep them at bay using food or any other kinds of habitual coping mechanisms we may turn to. Oftentimes the emotions get pushed out. And I think that's really the most problematic part is that we're not dealing with the feelings that, that we need to be dealing with. Yeah. Well, pivoting ever so slightly, just because I want to make sure that we have a couple minutes to talk about this, is that there's the piece of a relationship with food, and then there's also the body image piece. And we so often talk about, okay, so if someone has poor body image, how do we work toward body positivity? Or maybe if we can sort of reframe that a little bit more of like body acceptance that feels more feasible, or even body neutrality, which sort of like takes the emphasis off of it. But, you know, some of the things that you were talking about We're so on point in terms of like the way that we feel about our body in terms of the judgment versus observation, which completely takes out the judgment. And I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about the body acceptance piece. You know, again, bringing it back to mindfulness, acceptance is a core piece of mindfulness. And when we can be aware and present of the current moment, we try to turn to the current moment with a sense of acceptance. And acceptance doesn't necessarily mean you have to like what's happening. It's more simply about opening your eyes to the reality that like, yes, right here, right now, in this moment, this is where I am. This is what my body's like. This is my current situation. And then how can I care for myself with compassion and find a way to move forward? And I think of that in contrast to the state of denial that we're often in, which is more, my body can't look this way. It's not okay. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to go on this trip because I don't feel good about my body. I'm not going to go do this thing I want to do. I'm not going to date. I'm not, you know, and a lot of people, like we find that we're living our life on pause, waiting until this magical time where we feel better about our body, usually where we're going to think we're going to lose weight and then do all the things that we want to do. So acceptance is really about saying that right here, right now, this is where I am. And what can I do to best care for myself in this moment, whether or not you like it or are happy with what's happening. Yeah. I also want to just like sort of take a second to talk about how for some people, we were talking about internal weight bias. For some people who are in a larger body, 
they do experience stigma and it's not just the idea of working toward body acceptance is a little bit more complicated for those people. I just wanted to sort of like maybe even just give examples about how this can be really implicit. We're not talking about like the bully in the playground. This can be very sort of like in our jokes or in our conversations. And that that can be really, really harmful and make it harder to work toward body acceptance for some people. Yeah. And built into the environments that we exist in. And I think that body acceptance doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that you like it. And it doesn't mean that we don't want to change certain things. I think that we can accept our body and recognize how messed up the world around us is and want to change those systems that, you know, these systems of diet culture, fat phobia, weight bias, and accept that this is our body and we need to care for ourselves within the setting the best that we can. So, you know, what that might look like. So some examples of weight bias that people experience could be anything from like going to a restaurant and finding that the seats don't accommodate your body or a theater or or an airplane and the seats don't accommodate your body to going to a medical provider and being told to lose weight, even when that has nothing to do with what you're coming in for, which... It doesn't because for the most, there's very few things where weight is really the main explanation of our health issues. So people in larger bodies are often not able to get adequate medical care because, you know, they're just told to lose weight instead of actually acknowledging like what medical issues they're struggling with, looking for a proper diagnosis, doing medical testing, and often the experience of going to a doctor is so shaming and awful that they just avoid the doctors altogether. There's some research suggesting that people in larger bodies like are less likely to get preventative care. And when they do seek preventative care, they're less likely to get the testing that they need. You know, those are all examples of weight bias. In addition to the more blatant things like having someone pull certain foods out of your grocery cart while you're shopping or yell animal sounds at you out a window, you know, a car window and, you know, horrible things. I think that many of us would kind of see clearly and agree are really horrific things. And of course, recovery in the process of accepting your body is completely different when you're accepting your body in a world that also accepts your body versus when you're trying to accept your body in a world that's telling you that your body is bad and wrong and needs to be changed. And again, I think it comes down to a lot around trying to clearly see the world and the systems that are invested in viewing certain bodies as bad and certain as more certain bodies as more desirable or more valuable and placing your anger there and working to change the systems rather than taking internalizing it and believing that your body's the problem and trying to change your body. And also why I appreciate the term body acceptance maybe more so than body positivity because of so many of these intricacies. Yeah. Well, and I think body positivity has really got a misconstrued as meaning like feel good about your body all the time, which is not at all what it's about. I mean, I think body positivity at its core is an outgrowth of the fat acceptance movement. And it's not about seeing that your body is beautiful or desirable or expanding the definition of beauty to encompass more different types of bodies. It's really seeing that the way our body looks is not the most important thing about us. And I think that Beauty Redefined does such a great job of explaining this difference. And they have a quote that's something like, our body is an instrument, not an ornament. And I think that's what body positivity is really about. Yeah. Well, on that note, 
Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So you can find me on the internet, drconnison.com. You can find information about my... I have a weight-inclusive therapy practice. It's a group practice here in New York City. You can find that information at conisonpsychologicalservices.com. Um, I have a online mindful eating course. So if you're wanting to dive into mindful eating a little bit more, you can find I have some free resources, including some free training videos and also a six-week signature mindful eating course. You can find that at theantidietplan.com. And I'm on social media, most active on Instagram at theantidietplan. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.